Hi. So this podcast, I'm going to take it down a little bit. I feel the four-part series I did on Lindsay Buziak was pretty intense, and I there was a lot to unpack in that case. And I had to decompress from it. You know, it was the first case I've ever done where I've actually contacted the parent of the of the victim and you know that is a that's that's an experience in itself and you know I can't even imagine what must be like where it's like a nightmare that never goes away that's the best way I could boil it down and describe it it's the so I did a four-part series. It was pretty intense. A lot of information. A lot of, you know, and and you know, it. it I I learned some lessons in it, and and one of the lessons I've learned was, is you know, these are these are really these are true people. These are, and I never never said that. I never thought that before, but you know. People are still being really impacted and, and you really there's a lot of consideration, so it's important to do things where you don't upset the the parent of the the victim and the parents are victims themselves, as I said in my last podcast. So I was planning to do a, a, a missing woman on this podcast about Lisa Marie Young. And this case really deserves a lot of attention it deserves a lot more attention yes people have made podcasts and the there are a a strong group of advocates you know there's a there's a facebook page of people that really want at least a proper investigation has so many similarities to the lindsey buziak and i and i think that's why it's a perfect one you know for lack of a better term to highlight that there's something more to these women disappearing there's there's there seems to be a another element where they're never solved the investigation to the families always feel inadequate and the the term that i use is like oh yeah we're doing an investigation but it just seems that they just slow walk and the families will go to the police department have interviews and provide evidence that they've been tirelessly trying to gather so they can solve and have closure on their loved one and the police just take it and then they hear that it's it was never followed up on and and this lisa marie young case it it has the same elements you know you got another family who has ties and to the community and, and involved in big real estate deals and owns a lot of real estate you know it it just it's just what can you say right so it's it's there's there's a saying that, you know, is if if you've two of the same things, is it a coincidence? But if you have three or four or five of them, when does it stop being a coincidence? So, I will get into that in my next podcast. Um, I'm working with someone who has has um, inside information, who knows the families, who advocate themselves for this case. So, in this one, I'm going to really take my time and 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 um try to do the best job so hopefully my little effort will get her more attention and then someone else does another podcast and you share those podcasts and you know she lisa deserves this you know she was a young girl again 
you know, beautiful, you know, in her, in her peak of her youth and just out having a night just like any other teenage 20-something girl and the night becomes fatal. And, and this case is very troubling and has a sinister element too. So anyways. So to every story, there's an origin to the story. Some kind of events that have happened that creates bigger events into almost catastrophic events. There's a saying that a butterfly flapping its wings can cause a hurricane. So it's like a chain reaction. And when I, I've been doing this podcast for a very short time. And I've never did a podcast before, always wanted to. And when I put the idea about doing a podcast about Vancouver true crime, I seemed to got a really good reception right off the bat. And that positive reception, even at the earliest stage, I never recorded. I didn't even know what microphone to use. I've never used audio software. And so the beginning of this podcast was a bit rough. I had a whole bunch of other considerations going on. My five-year-old daughter is, uh, you know, she's a very intelligent girl. She's in kindergarten, but she has a ton of energy and she's been diagnosed with autism and her energy levels can just go through the roof. And there was times where she wouldn't sleep for 30 hours. So I was kind of going through a lot of uh, stress at the same time. I had some health issues and, and also fighting technology, learning new, you know, if you ever have any background in software, I do, there's always a learning curve, right? Until you get to know things. So, you know, I had microphones break when my daughter dropped one of my microphones and broke it. So then I had to use a, a lower quality one. So anyways, you don't need to know all this stuff, but I was having a lot of personal life challenges and I was learning it, but what kept me going was, you know, the positive reception I was getting from interacting with the true crime community. I started a, a pretty basic uh, Instagram page and right away, like it, 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 it really uh, blew my mind. I, I got all like instantly within two, three weeks, a thousand followers instantly. And I have other Instagram pages and stuff and no other topic I ever talked about ever got this type of reception. So even though, uh, you know, maybe it might have not have been the perfect time to start a podcast, that was fuel in my fire. And I really appreciate that. And I still do to this day. And I've gotten, you know, some great reviews and, and you know, got some critics too. But I'm putting out controversial information. And I always take the approach because I've done, I'll talk a little bit about my background but one of the things in my background is IT startups. I've done over 12 IT startups in my lifetime. Well-funded, lots of intelligent people, and most of them end in epic failure. So I train myself that it, whenever I put out content, no matter what it is, including my podcast and stuff, I expect it to get savaged because I've seen that scenario over and over. I've seen, I've been in situations where I'm in a startup that's well-funded, you know, $20 million of investors funding. So they have all the money in the world. They got the smartest people, PhDs, mathematicians, computer scientists that worked on projects that are so beyond my comprehension. But the thing's a massive epic failure. So I've learned a lot of lessons in failure 
And, and from coming from that kind of a culture, you just get back on the horse and you go again. So I never knew or, or, um, anticipated what kind of reception I would have gotten in the, in the beginning. Cause I've seen the other side of it, you know, the, you know, anyways, I'm not going to bore you about that right now. So what I want to talk about is, and like I said, in the beginning of this talk is that the origins. So like I said, I grew up in East Vancouver and East Vancouver, where I grew up was a very working class neighborhood. And some of the working class folks I made, made a lot of money. They had pools in their backyard. I worked in, uh, and a lot of them were in construction. So I did a lot of construction work when I was a kid, you know, on weekends, stuff like that. So there were people that worked really hard for their money, like really hard, you know, 10, 12, 16 hour days doing, doing, um, you know, stone masonry, concrete pouring, rebar, you know, I, so I, I saw a lot of people you know, growing up that had to work really hard for every penny they had. So with that type of environment where, you know, men have to work really hard for their money, you're going to get some pretty tough guys. And some people who are, you know, maybe they're more brainy than, than being able to do labor. They start becoming more contractors and, you know, they start doing more of the business end of it. But those guys, people, I've seen those type of people get their hands just as dirty too, but they're, they even have more pressure on their shoulders because they're, they're in charge of the financing. Right. So I've seen a lot of people growing up where they're really stressed out. They have to work really hard and things are always on the line all the time, you know, and in Vancouver, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was a very boom and bust city. You have times where there's more work than, than, than employees or people able to do the jobs. And then there's just like dry spells, right? So in these dry spells, I believe, because as I said, boom and bust economy, in these dry spells, you got men who are tough or hardworking and they're out of work. And these out-of-work men have families, they got bills to pay, they got responsibilities. Now, if they have teenage sons who are restless because they're out of work too, those kids started, like my brother, started, you know, first it was auto theft was a big thing. My brother prided himself in his skills of, of stealing cars. And one of the things they would do that I remember this is how I remember it. They would take the porcelain off the spark plugs because you throw the porcelain against the glass, the glass instantly shatters and it doesn't leave a loud noise. And then the shattered glass is just an easy way to be in the car. You can do this smash and inside the car in one second. He used this tool. It was like uh, they use it for uh, when you have a dent in the car. They drill a hole and they put this kind of like a puncher. It looks like a corkscrew and they punch it in. They pump, they pop, sorry, the dent out. So what he would do, he would take it and drill it right into the ignition thing. And then makes this, this rip the, the, the ignition starter out. And then he would just have access to the wire and boom, get, he have the car. So this was big money for, uh, um, him because, uh, 
you know, he would target muscle cars. Parts are easy to sell. Wheels, you know, easy to sell. It was a, it, you know, he stole two or three cars a week. It was a, it was a nice piece of cash flow. So, why would he get up and put on steel-toed boots and do rebar all day and get a paycheck that he can get for stealing someone's car? I'm not saying it's right, but this was a culture because, like I said, it was a very boom and bust. Recession. I remember growing up listening to recession, recession, recession. Oh, they just, every news, they just drone on and on about it. And um, so, yeah, so stealing cars. And then they had this other one. Like, to, to, to describe my brother and his friends, they were a bunch of cowboys. That's the best way to describe them. And they took pride and being from East Van, being super tough, and being scary. Like, they they got off that if they walked into a party or a room, everyone in the room would instantly, that was their currency. So, this next one they did, they would steal a little pickup truck. And then... Uh, if you notice a lot, well, if you're from Vancouver, I've noticed this more and more, especially on drugstores, they have those crash bars in front of the window. And I think it was because, you know, my brother and his cowboys, which I'll call them. So they would steal a pickup truck. They would drive it through the window. And then before they did that, they would go through the alleys and they would all steal again. Steal is a key word here. Those uh, big rubber garbage cans. Okay, you'll find out why. But they had to have a lid on them. So they dump out the garbage, steal them. So they drive through the alley with the stolen pickup truck and steal a bunch of garbage cans that were rubber that had a good lid on it. So the crew and then a follow-up car, would they would all run in, rush into the drugstore. Of course, it's, it's closed, right? It's middle of the night. Of course, an alarm is going off, right? Of course. They, w- they wouldn't touch the drugs because it's too much hassle. They'd go for the cigarettes. They'd, they, they would all each run in with a, one of the stolen plastic garbage cans, lids, without the lids, sorry, into the drugstore, and they would fill it up with cartons of cigarettes because those cartons are cash. It could go to a bar and sell it like that. So it's instant cash. Forget the pills. Too difficult. Too much time. Then they'd Put the lid on it, on the cans, throw them in the back of the pickup truck and squeal off into the night. And of course, the truck would get torched and blah, blah, blah. So for my brother, I don't really think it was the money, but he really got a like a rush off. It was more for the, the rush. And then they got more and more serious. They were doing some serious crimes. Some stuff I don't know about, but he did once tell me that they used to drive into the United States. This is, this is what they would do. Because you don't understand, back then, it was so easy to cross the border from Canada into the States. There are times when I lived really close to like the border, like say in White Rock or somewhere, where I wouldn't have my wallet on me. I'd be in flip-flop shorts, and we're just going across the line to gas up and buy some stuff over the line. And... Because I was a passenger, the border guard wouldn't even like even ask me. They just talked to the driver. Oh, are you going getting some gas? Okay, you know it was it was super easy. You know this is of course before BC Bud and you know the gang activity. But this is kind of when Vancouver was still relatively innocent. You know 
and it's, I would call it in its adolescence, right? Before, you know, it grew up to be what it is now. Remember, Vancouver is about 125-ish old. So anyways, moving on. They would drive into the States. They would do an armed robbery. And then they would come back and just tell the world, oh, we're just getting some gas. So they just drive across, do an armed robbery and somewhere, you know, in the you know, vicinity, and then they drive back into Canada because at the there was times where the Canadian dollar to the American dollar was like fifty cents. I've I think I've the I I think at one point, I think at its worst, it was like thirty five cents a dollar. So if you go off and get an arm rob, even for a few thousand bucks, you made four grand Canadian and back then you know, money went far. Like it wasn't expensive to live in Vancouver. It was hard to make money. But even if you made like a thousand bucks a month, you could live pretty good. You know, rent was about 300 bucks. And, you know, you're like something from a teenager getting like, you know, being a roommate. Like it was, it was, wasn't hard. If, if you made, if you worked full time, you could live pretty well or did crime. So then my brother started getting a reputation because he was hanging out with serious people who, you know, had more serious ties to, uh, uh, more, I guess, for lack of a better term, professional criminals. So my brother was making a name for himself for being a tough guy and being a cowboy, just do whatever it takes to, you know. And, and, you know, sometimes that did work in my favor because he, there was a seven years difference in our age. So when I was in grade eight, he was already graduated from high school and he had a tough guy reputation in East Vancouver. So I went, my first high school was Templeton. And for a, a kid who's been in elementary school and now he has to go to Templeton, it was terrifying. It was like, you know, it was a tough, tough school. And because they knew my brother and he had this reputation, you know, like putting in work and stuff. And he was considered like a serious, like, you know, guy you don't F with. I didn't get touched, which was great because, man, I saw kids just, I saw bullying on to some levels where, you know, it, it, it's still like it. I, there's some cases where I, I've seen where a kid gets bullied and it's just like, oh, I could, you know, now that I have kids, if that ever happened to my kids, it would just be, you know, I'd probably cry. Like it just, you know, oh, just seen horrible. I just give you an example. I remember there was a kid you know, I was in grade eight, grade nine in Templeton. And he was pretty gay looking and not see and not saying it as a way to insult him. But remember, you're in East Vancouver at the height of the tough guy era. And that's that's what the era was. It was that height of the tough guy era. And it was Templeton was considered as one of the toughest high schools and probably the province. And this guy, you know, he wore, it was like the 80s and everyone was into metal, metal, right? And I still love metal. But that was the only acceptable music that you were allowed to listen to openly or if you had it in your cassette tape, Metallica, Iron Maiden, you know, Judas Priest. Of course, they didn't know the lead singer's gay. But anyways, there was an acceptable, and if you were, you were okay. If you wore the uniform, the jean jacket, had the patches, you know, of all your favorite bands, ACDC, 
White Snake, Motley Crue. You're you're okay. You're you you weren't gonna get messed with. So yeah, almost had to wear. I almost felt like I had to become a bit of a character. But I love that stuff too, though. You know. But if you didn't wear it, there was a problem. So Scott, you know, this is the '80s. He was into Depeche Mode and know the more that they would call it new wave and that kind of stuff oh my god he became such a target and i think he dyed his hair too and i think he even wore eyeliner i saw him get beaten up every single day every day punched in the face um just tormented you know they would corner him in the corner and they would just it would just there was nothing you can do if you try to intervene it would happen to you and he would just scream and shriek and he would just get every day and then one and then then it got to the point where there was this one guy I I was actually in army cadets with, but you know, he was a bit he was a bit of a nutter. He was this Portuguese guy. We were pretty good friends, but he got bullied a lot because you know, he was a bit he was a bit awkward and, you know, quirky. And he had a dad that was so scary. Of all the dads, he, his dad was the scariest. Like I remember um you know, we're outside on a lunch break and his dad drives by in a truck and sees him and, and we'll call him Jorge. Jorge has a a cigarette. His dad cuts out of the car. I told you not to smoke. And this starts beating the crap out of him. He even took off his belt and this started like whipping him with his belt. Whap. And we're just like in shock. And his dad just gets back in the car and off he goes. And we pick him like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen some of the kids that I grew up with, especially the, you know, the European dads, man. They, 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 they would do beatdowns and whips. And there was another Italian kids I grew up with. They were twin brothers. And two of them were probably the toughest kids I've ever met in my life. And his dad would beat him with a belt all the beat them with a the belt all the time. It was terrifying to witness. So I seen that kind of stuff. These how these kids were raised. So Jorge decided that, you know, he he didn't want to be, you know, a victim of bullying and stuff anymore. So just like when you watch a lot of prison shows, I've never went to prison. Thank thank you. I'm glad that never happened. But I, I'm fascinated by it. I, I watch a lot of prison shows and prison channels on either, you know, Netflix or or um, YouTube. You know, there's lots of pretty amazing uh, uh, channels that where people went to prison and they tell their experiences. So one of the things is, the reason why I'm bringing that up, so George or Jorge had to prove himself, just like if he was in jail. It's almost a similar environment because a lot of these kids ended up I know so many people I went to jail in this time of my life when I was a kid. So Jorge had to prove himself. So one day, Scott, the alternative kid, shows up and he's wearing really some really very effeminate outfit. And it's like, and I was like, oh, why did you wear that? Oh, dude. Like I just soon as saw him, I just knew something terrible was gonna happen to him. And he was wearing almost like they looked like almost like ladies pants that kind of like, I don't know. They looked like he was wearing his mother's pants and he had makeup on and he had, he got all these new piercings and, uh, and I was like, Oh God, it's like, I'm counting in my head before. And, and, and Jorge sees him and just attacks him because everybody's thinking the same thing. Like, Oh, who's going to beat him up? 
and I just have the sickest feeling in my stomach because I know all oh, that, that just and the I, I think what happened now that I'm older and I know a little bit more about human psychology and all that kind of stuff is that all those feelings of being beaten by his dad and whipped and being you know he was mildly bullied compared to him, but it was still people pest him. He, people were more of a pest to him. And this rage just came out and he started beating and punching him. But he, he was very like, he wasn't, it wasn't like a, a blind rage. Like just, it was more like calculated, but you can see by his whole persona, like he was in a different place and he just kept punching him in the same spot over and over doing kind of like low, uh, right left hook so basically he would push him Scott would put his hands up to defend himself from being pushed Jorge would drop down like in a boxer drop down and then right hook to his kidney left hook in his kidney and he kept doing this over and over and and Scott was screaming and we're all like hey, hey okay and, and finally I broke it up because I was felt like way well, at least I have a you know a friendship with Jorge so at least he, I don't think he would attack me and 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 this poor Scott kid just was in the fetal position crying his eyes out and then he had bruised kidneys. I'm just like, now if you did that in high school, they they call the police. But they had a cop in the school. But the police never got involved in schoolyard fights. They had they were busy with other stuff, right? And and uh, the, the 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 school because it was so prevalent, the school just had an attitude like, well, yeah, kids fight. They, they I think it's very different. I think the schools take that a lot more serious. I sure hope so. Because as I said, my daughter's in kindergarten. And um, his sister came, his sister, and she, you know, she had some big kahunas and, and gave us all this, you know, let us have it. You know, she screamed at us saying all the injuries and, you know, and, and, and no one touched her. No one said anything back because she was right. It was horrible. It was awful. And he never went back to that school. You can see. So anyways, I grew up with kids that were savages. And, and, you know, if there wasn't a lot of work for them, like being a stonemason, laying brick, uh, framing houses, working as fishermen, a lot of them were fishermen. That's a really tough job. You know, they grew up in fishermen families. And if, the, you know, that was a big industry back then in Vancouver. I, I don't think so anymore, but it was a huge, and like the fisheries was a huge employer, right? Because again, Vancouver is a resource uh, city. It's not as probably as much anymore, but back then it relied on selling, taking resources to market, lumber, um, oil and gas, and um, fishing, and that kind of stuff, hydroelectric power. So it was, that's the type of province it was and still is to this day. So the men that did these tough jobs were tough dudes. And, you know, again, so again, a lot of them, realize that hey do crime it pays better and there was a, a serious criminal element in vancouver even back then they were a lot more low-key then but they were there were serious you know gangsters and you know biker clubs and you know there was serious you know uh, criminal element here so my brother started getting a more of a tougher a tougher group of friends 
And there was one friend, I'm not going to identify him, and I could easily just tell you an article to Google, and it would instantly tell you who he is because he he went out bad. He ended up getting executed in a very public way. But I'm, I'm going to talk about him, but I'm not going to go in because they, these are really dangerous people, and they're still around, and I'm not going to upset dangerous people, especially when I have little kids. You know, It's not worth the risk. So... I'm going to speak about him only from my experience being a little kid and being aware of what they were doing and what they were like. So this guy was, if you saw him, he was very unassuming. He was a shorter guy. He was probably 5'9", and he had a slim build. But he had dark hair and he had dark eyes. But there was this smoldering intensity about him. Like Of all the big dudes, he was the scariest and toughest guy. And he would tell stories about things he would do. So back in the day, police wore uniforms with the hat. I think, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just speculating here. The reason why they don't wear hats anymore, because we'll call him Mr. Mr. Rage is probably the best way to describe Mr. Rage. Mr. Rage would be all calm and he'd go up to the cop and he would playfully knock the cop's hat off. The cop would bend down and pick it up and he would kick the cop in the face and run off. And it was his biggest thrill for him. And then, of course, then his other psycho friends started doing it. So it became a thing. So one day the cops came to his house at four in the morning and they had a search warrant. They kicked open the door, you know, came in with like full like guns blazing. They ripped that house apart because the search warrant was four, 24 hours. They stayed I think from four in the morning to six o'clock at night and they ripped the drywall out. They took paint thinner and they poured paint thinner in all the family's pictures and, you know, drywall, pillows cut, mattresses would be cut, everything in the cupboards dumped, you know, everything ransacked, everything spilt on the floor, carpet ripped up, you know, obviously it was, hey, don't kick us in the face. So criminals back then had a very adversarial relationship with the police. The police would brawl these guys. They would sometimes, because the cops would be so fed up with them because of the shenanigans, they would meet, and this is true, in the park. The cops would take off their guns in the belt, put them in the trunk of the car, and these guys would have brawls. So these men and criminals didn't have fear of the police at all. So this was like before BC Bud became a thing. So now you have these guys that don't fear the cops. They, you know, they, the, and the cops had a very, it was a very different type of police force back then. You know, there was old, the elevator ride that never happened to me, but you'd hear people and people would tell that the cops would take in the elevator, put a phone book on your chest and they'd beat the phone book with flashlights and batons. I've seen cops do some pretty brutal stuff, you know, at house parties, you know, when I was a teenager, handcuffing a kid to a light pole and then smacking the kids kneecaps with the mag light but just not hard just a little tap but it hurts like hell and doesn't really leave a bruise so you know i've seen on both sides where people f with them really hard don't respect their authority spit in their face throw drinks at them like i've seen you know cops take a lot of abuse from these dudes and then i have seen the cops giving it back too so it was a very different type of situation So one day, um, 
yeah, they were all watching a uh, video. These are my brother and my his friends. They were watching a video. And it was hockey fights. So they're in the living room and they're watching these hockey. And I could just feel the testosterone. Everyone's getting all pumped up. And then they go to a bar. They go to a bar and, of course, get into a fight because that's what they did. You know, they, they didn't go to the bar to have fun. They didn't care about meeting chicks or anything like that. They wanted to go to the bar to dominate the other guy, scare the chick, pick a fight, you know, you know, stir some shit up. And I guess they got into a fight with these group of guys. And then the, the weaker one out of my friend's, my brother's friend's group was end up being by himself later that night. And they saw him and they stabbed him. They killed him. They stabbed him. And this is the first time out of that group of friends, you know, growing up as a little kid, that one of them now got killed for their actions or consequences of their actions. So that, you know, that was a, that, that was like, oh my God, like the first time I even heard of someone dying, except for like an, you know, old relative, but someone that was, you know, relatively to your age and they caught the guy and they put him in jail and, um, you know, a lot of these guys had, you know, some of them had good relationships with the jail guards because they, they grew up in jail. So they knew these, these guards were almost like a second family in some ways, you know, they, it, you know, it's again, right. And one of his friends went up to um, the jail guard and said, hey, this guy's killed my friend. He knifed my friend. He's dead. And he's, he's bragging about it. And the guard says, okay, I'll give you 15 minutes. So they all go and get a lock and they put it in a sock. They throw a blanket. It's called the blanket party. And they beat the living tar into a bloody pulp with their locks and their socks. Jail guard comes in. Didn't see anything. You know, maybe there's some administrative punishment, but you know, it, it was a different time, right? Not probably what it's like today. I can't imagine. I, so a story about Mr. Rage, Mr. Rage. I remember he had some dealings with, uh, my brother telling me this story. He had some dealings with some Asian gangsters and he was, they, they were trying to intimidate him. So Mr. Rage went to the front of their house with an AR-15 and shot up their living room, their windows, the door, their cars. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is the kind of duty was. So yeah, that's why I'm not mentioning his name and I'm not going to tell you any information to identify him. And you know, if someone really presses me for it and they really need to know they can DM me and I'll just Google them an article because he ended up getting uh, killed on his front door and it was a huge no news. It was huge. It was huge. It was like uh, all over the media and stuff. Someone knocked on his door and shot him and his execution. So that's all I'm going to tell about that side of it. Anyways. So again, my brother was hanging out with more serious people and then the ultimate happened. BC Bud became a thing. Now, these guys that are doing these really high-risk crimes, like really high-risk crimes, going across the border, doing armed robberies so they can get American cash, you know, driving through windows of drugstores, doing break-in entries, doing armed robberies, um, getting paid to beat people up. Who knows? Like the list goes on and on, you know, stealing cars. But now you can grow a plant. And if you grow that plant right... 
you can make thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So, so a lot of the, you know, some people tried and failed miserably, but some were smart and they started, you know, doing it right. And they started making a lot of money and now they have a lot of money. Now they don't have to do, you know, these low bullshit crimes anymore. They can hire defense attorneys, the best in the city. You know, they're insulated. They can take that money and start buying houses and cars. Now they have power. Because the other thing that you got to consider is that being on the east side, I would meet snooty kids. And later on, and, and when I was in grade 11, 12, I ended up moving and going to uh, living in Kitsilano, went to Kitsilano High School. So it was a very different. I'll go into that another time. But being from East Van, there was a stigma in the city. Oh, you're from East Van. You're a criminal. You're a low life. You're, you know, you have to do labor. And that was like, you know, you do a dirty job. And my dad's an accountant and blah, blah. There was, there, there was definitely an East-West divide. There was us versus them mentality. Because um, I, I got into doing a lot of stuff on my own because I, I didn't really want that life for myself. Never did. But it was the environment I was in. And, and. And so I did a lot of, I was in army cadets, I was in boy scouts. So I did it so I can get away and not, you know, be around misery all the time. And I loved camping. I learned outdoor skills and stuff like that. And then I became, I got into sailing. So I would go on these sailing camps. I learned how to sail. I could sail for like three or four days out in open ocean without any fear. Like I'm, I'm that trained in it. And, and so I became a sailing instructor as a, as a teenager. So while I'm off going sailing, I'm coming, like, you know, on the weekends, I'd go sailing and doing that kind of stuff. And then when I'd come back, my brother and his crazy friends and, and um, you know, their war stories. And then he got a job as a bouncer and, you know, telling me all these crazy, you know, it was just, this, was just this insanity, right? And, and then scarier and scarier people are now coming to the house, like, you know, people wearing patches and tattoos all up. And, you know, they look like almost like something out of a Viking movie. And I, I actually, and they were actually, cause I was still little, a lot of them really liked me. And there was this one dude and, you know, I hope he's still around because he was one of my favorite people growing up as a kid. He was like a giant. So when you're a little kid, a big giant comes to the house. It's like something out of a cartoon. This guy was named, his name was Mark too. My name is Mark. His name is Mark. I don't want to say his last name, but hopefully he's out there doing well. And he was massive. He was a white dude that had a, a big blonde afro. And he still is one of the biggest dudes I've ever seen in my life. He was seven feet tall. All his family were massive. And he had these giant hands. And he was like these, his, his hands looked like the size of hams. And he really took a shine. He would always bring me stuff. Like he would paint. Like he was a really nice. He had a kid a heart. This guy, even though he was a tough dude, he had a really big heart, especially for kids. And he would always, you know, he would paint. He'd do these like little like these figurines, like porcelain figurines that he'd paint himself. Sometimes it would be like a, you know, a, a piggy bank or like he would take his time. He would make me something. It was better than buying something. He would actually, you know, take his time and paint it. Some would be like a, but not a guy in your entire life that you would ever want to mess with. And Mark had a friend who was Samoan, who was as big as him, but more body fat. Mark was more like a tank, this big moving tank. That's the only way to describe it, right? Where his friend, we called him Blackie, and he was Samoan. He chose the name himself. That's how he went by with. And they were like these two guys who'd go out and drink like a whole two, four a beer and just go crazy. And one time... This blackie dude, Mark's friend, 
was so drunk he took a knife and he stabbed it in his own hand and then he was showing everybody this knife in his hand so yeah these people were like you know you know like as i said they were like they were savages but mark was a lovable savage but you know i said i hope he's doing well at 15 years old Mark was a bouncer at the Commodore Ballroom, which was a very, and still is a famous venue. But back then, it was a really famous venue. That He was that big. At 15, he was a bouncer. So anyways, uh, my brother had these really, you know, as I said, scary friends. And one day, I don't know, he must have pissed one of them off because we had a very suspicious, a suspicious arson at the house. And something was thrown through the window and lit our bathroom on fire. My brother wasn't around for three days. And when he came back, I still remember that guilty look on his face. So guilty. And never would talk about it. Never. But anyways, it got ruled as an accident or something by the insurance company. And they renovated it. But it was pretty traumatizing. You come home and your house is on fire. So, yes been through some crazy stuff as a child so anyways I want to thank everyone again like I said in the beginning of this podcast is I never never as I said I've been through so many startups I never you never know what's going to take off and what you're going to get a reception you always you know myself I always try to do my best and and so when something's getting good reception like this podcast like my Instagram page it makes me want to put more energy into it. So I'm starting a, a WordPress uh, page. It's I'm, it's going to be a blog style, and I'm going to post a lot of articles and source material. And that way I can post, post a source material and then kind of get more in a deep dive of the story. Because some see, the, sometimes it's, it's very challenging to try to break down these cases because these cases are so elaborate and there's so much to them in it. And, and, and I don't want this to be this like a download of information because you can just, as I said, Google that, Google that or look at that on Wikipedia. But there's so many things that's important for the, the listening audience to know about these cases that they could tend to be like that. So I think the best solution is to have a blog where I post more of the source material and then I can focus more on like a, a deep dive analysis and give my thoughts and feelings from doing the research about it. And then it's a more of a boiled down conversation, right? So that's one of the things I'm planning to do. And then I'm going to start putting stuff on YouTube. I'm just going to start slow with that. I've had YouTube channels before and it's kind of a different kind of uh, platform than it was back in the day. But if anything, it'll be good to archive a lot of these videos because sometimes in these cases, things go into a memory hole and they're really hard to find because there's a lot of cases that I want to tell you guys about, but I always want to try to provide some source material. And even though even like four or five years ago, I could get those articles, they're really, sometimes these articles just get, they just disappear, right? So I think the the YouTube channel, of course, I want it to do well. But even if it just becomes an archive so I can, that some of these stories and stuff don't disappear forever, it's, I think it's an important thing to do because the, the cases that I choose to do and highlight, I, 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 I try to choose stories that I'm going to really put a lot of energy into that I believe really need to be out there. Lindsay Buziak, you know, there, there is a march, but man, it just that there needs to be a new investigation that's that's just you know boiling it down that, that's at the end of the day that's what it turns into and in the case that i'm going to talk about too but one podcast i want to give a real thank to 
is uh, the Murderific podcast. They're from Maine and home of Stephen King. And I've been listening to the podcast and they've been so supportive of me in the very beginning. Like they were first to, you know, reach out to me when I published my first podcast, even though I didn't really think it was the greatest and great sound quality, but it was my first one. And, you know, all the technology and all the stuff was going on in the background. And it was really good that someone reached out to me because I thought, oh, good, that someone's noticing, at least noticing what I'm doing. So I want to give a shout out to them and they have amazing podcasts and I just want to thank them so much for the support and little DMs. And, you know, there was a period too when I was researching the Highway of Tear cases, which I didn't, I didn't or never did a podcast because those cases are so like, they're so hard, they're, they're so heart wrenching and draining because they're just so awful and it's just so horrible that this is happening that it takes your mind into such a dark place. So I can't imagine the nightmare for their family. So I was doing all these re the research, these cases, and I, was, I actually went in a dark depression. And I also was considering not doing the podcast anymore because I can't afford to get in a depressive state. And when you're doing dark subject matter, it's in, unless you're, you know, total psychopath, you, you feel, you know, you have to feel for these cases, right? And, and I didn't do a podcast and they reached out and they, Hey, when's your next podcast? Da, da, da. And you know, and, and, and even that little thing made me feel like, yeah, you know what? People are actually appreciating what I'm doing. So let's get, let's get going. Let's do it again. So again, I want to thank them for that. And, and they'd have an amazing podcast. It's run by Bernadette. And, uh, if you give it a listen, I th I'm sure you'll love it. And they have a Patreon um, button and support you can support my patreon and do that because they work really hard on their podcast and you know i think they deserve that and so anyways that's that so i'm going to leave it here and i hope everyone has a great day i hope you enjoyed sorry but i want to give you kind of some more of the origins and then i'm going to really break start breaking down the how and why cr crime happened step by step until what it is today because every story has an origin and I never in my wildest imaginations thought Vancouver would go in the direction that it has growing up here. So I think it's, that it's an important story to tell. Anyways, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Maine, the northernmost state in America, usually thought of as a quaint, safe vacation destination. Our motto is the way life should be. But did you know serial killer John Joseph Jobert was raised in Maine and was convicted of three stabbing murders of young boys? Or the unsolved abduction of baby girl Ayla Reynolds, supposedly stolen from her bed near Christmas 2011. Her body has never been found. These are just two of the main stories Murderific has covered. We cover crimes from all areas and Maine cases as well. Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by me, Bernadette, can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to murderific.com. We will be executing podcasts one crime at a time.